Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is God's word. The big idea in the section of text that I just read to you is that Jesus Christ was sent as God to man and returned as man to God so that we can have rest. Jesus Christ was sent as God to man and returned as man to God so that we can have rest. In fact, Christ our rest is the theme of a new series that we're starting this week. It's going to be four weeks. It's going to start here in chapter 3, verse 1, and take us all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. And we're going to see that as those who have put our faith in Christ, that, uh, that rest is one of the things that He promises. And I think it's going to be helpful because uh, I'm guessing that we live in a day and age where most of us would appreciate more rest. Physical rest, emotional rest, rest from worry, anxiety, stress, fear. I would guess if you were to describe most people today, they wouldn't use the word restful or relaxed or peaceful to describe what they're like. They always seem to be busy, always doing something, always rushing from here to there. Always something kind of on the horizon that might cause us to worry, something happening now that is causing us to worry, or something that happened in the past that had we worried about it more, maybe it wouldn't have been so bad. Worry, stress, anxiety, trouble. We forget what Job said. Man's days are few and full of trouble. That's not the most encouraging thing in the world. But taken with the promise that in Christ there is ultimate rest, we can see why you can work through that and not allow it to cause despair. This morning I want to take a look at this text and tell you that he is going to give rest to the humble. It's really our title for this morning, Rest for the humble. And the way this text is going to break down is we're going to look at a confession, confidence, and how that leads to rest. So our confession, the first part of chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, our confidence, the next half, and then how that brings rest. Now, I want to begin by saying that this is a rest that comes to the humble because at the end, there might be a contrast, might be a paradox. In fact, if you look down at verse 6, it says, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You say, now wait a minute, how can you be confident and boasting and also humble? 
And this is one of the paradoxes of the Christian life. We are to be the most humble people, and we are the people who are to boast the most. We are to be the most humble people, and yet the ones who are constantly extolling the glory of the hope that we have in the ultimate resurrected conqueror of the universe, Jesus Christ. So you see, it's not a a sinful kind of boasting if you're boasting in somebody else. In fact, you're never more humble than when you're boasting in the glory of somebody else. The very boasting and hope that we show indicates that we don't have any hope in ourselves. And so the very essence of the rest that you're going to be able to experience is that it is anchored to the fact that you don't look at yourself as being the source of all that would normally bring rest, and instead boast and put confidence in the one who can. Your confession, your confidence, and how it leads to rest. Let's look beginning with our, our confession here, verse 1. Our confession, our confidence, and how it leads to rest. The writer of the Hebrews begins, Therefore, holy brothers... You who share, you who are active partakers in a heavenly calling, consider or think deeply Jesus. That's where it begins. The writer is saying that the audience here that he wants to address is this group of confessing believers, and you'll remember that they were Christians, likely in Rome or close to Rome, who were experiencing persecution. Uh, They had just come out of the the reign of Claudius, and they were facing the reign of Nero. And they were in a brief window where things were not as intensely difficult as they had been in the past, but it was about to get worse. And it's almost like the, the, the writer to these Hebrew believers was saying, I want to prepare you for what's coming. Because it's going to get bad. It's going to get hard. You're going to feel an increasing amount of pressure to go back to what you used to do before. Uh, back to the things that weren't so uh, costly, back, back to the way of life that wasn't so difficult. In fact, I, I know there's going to be a temptation to actually ditch this whole thing about following Jesus and go back to Judaism because at least Judaism had a certain amount of religious protection. And you weren't getting attacked from both the pagans and the Jews. At least you were only getting attacked by one group. And and the temptation here is going to be to to, to go away from Christ where you know you should be placing your focus and go back to what was more comfortable. And so the author wants to essentially strengthen their hand. And he says, holy brothers, sanctified brothers, set apart brothers, uh, brothers that were um, ethnically Jewish, just like this writer likely was, but even more so, they were set apart, sanctified by God as children of God. You are active partakers. You you are ones who actually have an ownership in this calling from heaven. And so I want you to consider Jesus. And by consider, I don't just mean for you to think about him, but the word consider there meant to take very close and very intimate and very particular focus on something. Jesus used the same word when um, he was telling everyone not to be concerned about God providing And he said, I want you to consider the lilies of the field, to look at them closely. He would mean, go up close to that lily, look at it, consider how beautiful it is, consider how elegant it is, 
And after you've considered the fact that this is just a flower that comes up for a little while and then dies, don't you think that your Father in heaven is going to care more for how you're clothed? In like fashion, he says, don't just consider the flower, but consider Christ himself. Look closely. Now, this takes some time. This is not a, a passing glance, right? This isn't something you can just quickly do. If you've ever had the opportunity to visit a world-class art gallery, you go ahead into that place having prepared for what you're going to go and see. You have certain works of art that you're excited about going to, to see there, live, in person. And you go up to that, that work of art and, and you're just sort of forced to pause and to, to reflect upon it and to appreciate just the magnitude of it, the glory of it, the beauty of it, the intricacy of it. If you were to go to the art gallery, let's say you go up to L.A., you go to the Getty, you're going to spend the day at the Getty. Um, I strongly recommend that. It's a wonderful way to spend an afternoon. Or a morning, an afternoon, a whole day, a week for all of Just go up there, and you set up the time, and you're going to take somebody with you, and you're going to go, and you're going to walk through the art gallery. If the person you brought with you, upon entering the art gallery at a very fast pace, basically walks as quick as they can through all of the rooms, and then finds themselves on the other side of the building and out towards the parking lot in about an hour, you would say they have a very minimal appreciation for what's before them. There is no way in that short period of time you're going to be able to truly appreciate what's there. Likewise, the author is saying to us, when you consider Jesus, don't just give him a passing glance. Spend the time it takes to truly consider who he is and what he has done. Because it forms up the basis of your confession. The author is going to ask the Christians to make this confession of their faith in Christ. They are going to speak. They are going to declare. They are going to identify specific ways in which Christ is the glorious Redeemer in whom they have placed their trust. If somebody truly appreciates a work of art, they can speak about it for hours. And if somebody truly appreciates the glory of Christ, they can speak about him for hours. And here, the um, author gives this amazing description. He calls him the apostle and the high priest of our confession. He is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. You might say, I don't recall Jesus being referred to as an apostle anywhere else in the New Testament. And that would be because nowhere else in the New Testament is Jesus referred to as an apostle. In fact, this is the only place that he's called an apostle. Now, to be an apostle, you had to witness the risen Christ. You had to be one of his disciples. And so, when we look at the word apostle here, I don't want you to get confused. What it really means is that he is a sent one. That's what the word apostle means. One that is sent by God. And the greatest one ever to be sent by God is Christ. He is the greatest apostle. He is the ultimate apostle, the apostle of all apostles. He is the one sent by God to become man in order that he might represent man to God. In the, uh, in the absolute darkest moment of Job's despair, he laments to God that he is utterly and completely alone because there are no men who can perceive the depth of his grief and God 
could not perceive the depth of his grief. And he says, there is nobody who can place their hand on God and man. What he means in chapter 9, verse 33, is that there is nobody who is God enough to represent God to me and man enough to represent man to God. There there is nobody that would be able to bridge that gap. And what Jesus did when he was sent is he bridged that gap between God and man so that he could become our empathetic and sympathetic high priest. And so not only is he the apostle, he is also the high priest, and he is only called the high priest here in the book of Hebrews, I think 12 times. So this is a very specific identification the writer is giving. He says that Jesus is, as you consider him, as you think about him, he is the ultimate apostle and the ultimate high priest. And this is what makes up your confession. It means to speak something together. We confess this together. As a, as a body here, as a church, we confess that. We acknowledge and believe it. Now, this might strike you as odd, but there's an immediate comparison. He says to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Why Moses? Why would the people have to be told that Jesus was a greater apostle and high priest than Moses? The answer is that Moses was the greatest celebrity in Judaism. He was the greatest of all time. There was nobody greater than Moses in the eyes of the Jewish people. He was greater than Adam. He was greater than Noah. He was greater than Abraham. He was greater than David. In fact, all of them were a very distant second to Moses. Moses was the pinnacle. Moses was the one chosen before his very birth to lead the people. He was the one miraculously preserved. He was the one who, by God's providence, was able to be raised by his own mother, hired by the household of Pharaoh, believing that she was just a nurse. He was the one who was able to get all the education and have all of the luxuries of a life in the greatest nation the world had ever known. A nation that compared to the rest of the nations, even by today's standard, was the greatest ever. He was able to go through the ranks of the uh, Egyptian hierarchy to be considered somebody just a few steps below Pharaoh himself. He was one of the most glorious human beings ever. He is the one who ultimately defended his own people by killing one of the Egyptians who was assaulting a Jew, and as a result, was cast out into the wilderness. Now, the Jews also regarded him because it was in that wilderness that God specifically called him. Do you remember how? Commissioned him, ordained him, sent him to be an apostle to the Jewish people through a burning bush. A burning bush that was not consumed. Fire everywhere, but the bush never got any smaller. Not only that, but once he actually was brought back into Egypt, he was the one who by his own apparent power and ability to deliver, by using the power of God, led two million people out of Egypt. Through ten plagues that brought absolute universal destruction upon the nation of Egypt. It was by his mouth and by his staff and by his hand that Pharaoh was confronted, that Pharaoh was warned, 
that Pharaoh was told, if you don't let my people go, these plagues are going to come. He had the audacity and the guts to go into the very throne room of Pharaoh, who was the most powerful man in the world at that time, and over and over and over and over again, throw it down in front of him and say, if you don't let the people go, plagues are going to come. And they did. Pharaoh was the one who had to keep coming back to Moses to say, okay, you are right, please stop the plagues. It was Pharaoh who called on Moses to help him. And at the end, it was Moses who told the people to take that animal, sacrifice it, put the blood on the doorposts and on the crossbeam of your house, and when the angel of death comes at the Passover, your firstborn will be spared. And every Jewish person who walked out of Egypt that next morning with their firstborn alive thanked God for Moses, who told them how to preserve them. Not only were they preserved, they were also delivered. And not only were they delivered, but it was an extraordinary deliverance. Please remember this in the narrative. After all of these ten plagues have ravaged Egypt, and everybody knows that it comes from Moses and that Moses is in charge of the Jewish people, you would think that there might be a little bit of anti-Semitism going on in Egypt at that time. I mean, you wouldn't think the Jews would be the kind of people that you would want to be friends with. Uh, You would sort of associate them as being the source of all your problems. And yet Moses says, by the way, when this final plague comes and the firstborn is killed, you need to go to your neighbor as you're preparing to leave and say, give me stuff. (laughs) These were slaves, remember? Slaves didn't have a lot of gold, silver, precious stones, purple cloth, and animals to sacrifice. They were living a subsistence. They were just scraping by. And so when they were leaving Egypt, they would go to their neighbor and they would say, give me gold and silver and precious stones and fabrics. Give me animals. Give me something so that I can sacrifice to the very God who brought all these plagues upon you. Give me stuff so that I can sacrifice to the glory of the God who killed your son last night. And they loaded them up. You see, slaves don't have gold and silver and precious stones and cloth and animals so that they could build a beautiful tabernacle and sacrifice animals to Yahweh. That was given to them. And when Moses asked them to come and to give, they gave so much he had to tell them to stop. (laughs) Imagine if if we had that here, like we were doing a fundraising campaign, right? We're trying to raise some money for a good cause. I had to stand up on a Sunday morning and say to you, you, you need to stop giving. There is so much. You just need to stop. And you're disappointed, like, oh, I wanted to give more. This was what they were, this was their attitude towards Moses. Moses, their deliverer, their protector. And I'll just say one more thing, because again, we could just go on and on about this, but one more thing. It, it says in the book of Numbers, which Moses wrote, He was their historian, remember? He wrote the five books of Moses, we call them. (laughs) They're not five books just about Moses. They're five books written by Moses. And one of them, the book of Numbers, explains that when Moses would go out to the tent of meeting, all the people would go to the edge of their tent and they would stand and they would watch him go. They would watch Moses walk into the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was not like this. It wasn't where all the people came to worship God. It was meant for one thing, for a a place for God to meet Moses. And he would go into the tabernacle and 
God says, I would speak to Moses like a, like a man to man. I would speak to Moses not through visions and not through other things like I did with the other prophets. With Moses, I just spoke to him. We had an intimacy. Moses had an intimacy with God that was closer than anybody since Adam. And God told him everything that he was to say and do and write down. He was their apostle. He was their historian. He was even their high priest. Remember, Aaron was the priest, and he was the one who was to offer the sacrifices. Yes. But when Moses was up on the mountain getting the law, and he comes back down, and the people have dissolved into all sorts of debauchery and wickedness, and Aaron had built him a golden calf to worship, it was Moses who interceded for them. It was Moses who goes before God and says, don't kill them. Moses was the high priest who stood between God and the people. And not only that, he was also humble. In fact, he says in Numbers 12, 3, that he was the most humble man ever. Now, you've got to be pretty humble to write that about yourself and, and, and for it to be true. I mean, that, that's got to be an awkward moment. God's telling him what to write, and he gets to this, and he says, now, by the way, make sure you write down that you are the most humble man who's ever lived. And you can imagine, he's like, you know, okay, but I'm not sure how this is going to come off. He was. God humbled him for 40 years in the wilderness. God took him from the height of power. God took him from Egypt, from the house of Pharaoh, from having everything to some backwater in the desert for 40 years where he had to live in the, I was going to say in the woods. There weren't even woods. I don't know. The desert. He had to live out, he had to live rurally. He had to become a farmer for 30 years farming, raising, 40 years, farming, raising animals before God brought him back. But by that time, God had humbled him. I think God takes, takes men through some pretty humbling seasons sometimes, takes away a lot of the things that would lead them to be proud, and then whatever they're left with is the, the person that God can use. And this was Moses. Now he could use him. The people held Moses in such high regard that God, when he killed Moses buried him himself, probably because the people, had they found Moses' body, would have found a way to turn it into an idol. So it's that Moses that the writer to the Hebrews reminds us is not anywhere near as glorious as Jesus. In fact, he says here that Jesus was the faithful apostle and high priest to the God who sent him just as Moses also was faithful in God, all God's house. Our confession is that, that Jesus Christ is even greater than Moses. Moses was the predecessor. Moses gave a shadow of what Christ would be in his apostleship and as a high priest. That's our confession. Number two, look at our confidence beginning in verse three. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Oh, that would have just shaken them. More glory than Moses, how could that be? The answer is that he is more glorious. In fact, he deserves more glory than Moses in the same way that the builder of the home receives more glory than the home itself. You understand the illustration? You can go to some pretty glorious examples of human architecture. Some of them are marvels. Some of them are engineering marvels. Some of them are aesthetic marvels. 
Uh, Some of them are um, so innovative that they literally represent something nobody else had done before. And if you're an engineer, you might go to a bridge and marvel at it. If you're a musician, you might go to a concert hall and marvel at it. If you love art, you go to a, a chapel where Michelangelo has painted the ceiling and you marvel at it. But in every case, as much as you marvel at the structure, ultimately, who are you really marveling at? You're marveling at the architect. You're marveling at the designer. You're marveling at the artist. The home is beautiful, but the architect is the genius. And so here, the author to the Hebrews is saying that in the same way that the architect deserves the glory for the house, so too God deserves the glory for the house that we comprise as his people. And Christ receives the glory as the builder. For verse 4, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Your confidence then is anchored to the fact that it is God who is the ultimate creator of all things. He is the one who has done it all. He is the one who owns it all. He is the one who sends his son to represent him. He is the one whose son dies in the place of the people that he was sent to represent and then becomes their eternal high priest. You see, your confidence is not anchored just in some hopeful notion that God is real. It is anchored in all that he has done. Now, to be more clear about the supremacy of Christ over Moses, verse 5 says, Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. We can just pause there for a moment. That is a word that is not used elsewhere in Scripture. There's, there's two other words for servant, by the way, in the New Testament that's used. Uh, one is translated deacon quite often, um, a servant who's a deacon. Uh, the other would be a, a servant who is a slave. The slave, as you know, was in some form of indentured servitude. It was for a period of time. They had no real identity. They had no real volition. They would do whatever they were told. Uh, the deacon-type servant was there just to serve and to help and to, to do some of the more menial tasks that were involved. But this is a, a third word, only here. And this servant is a, is a servant who serves out of the joy of serving. It, you could literally translate it a willing servant. So there's an opportunity here for Moses. And Moses says, I love the opportunity of going to serve the Lord. I want to serve in his house. It would be an honor for me to serve. Imagine if you were invited to be present at an event that you could never earn access to. So whatever the highest level of awards that are given out in your industry or in your world, imagine that you are invited to go and to serve at that event. You're not going to be on stage. You're not going to be getting an award. You're not even going to be in the audience. You're not going to be eating the food, but you're there to serve. You're there to park cars. You're there to open doors. You're there to make sure the air conditioner is set right. You're there to just serve the people at the event. It's so exciting for you to be there. I just want to be there. When I was younger, I used to uh, sell programs and lineups for the Ottawa Senators. Uh, That's a hockey team, in case you don't know. Uh, They had just started. This was a long, long time ago. And so I would uh, stand in the middle of the crowded 
uh, entryways, and, and I would basically just, you know, yell out, you know, programs, lineups. I'd say it louder than that, but you get the idea. And people would come, and they would buy it from me, and that, that's what I would do. And then when I was done, before the uh, night was over, I would get to go down, and I could watch the games. And so I could stand right beside the rink, and I could watch the games. And then when the, the game was over, uh, for me to get paid, I would have to wait for the office manager, and that person's office was there in the dressing room. And so I would sit there in the dressing room while the guys were getting changed, and I would kind of wait for the opportunity to get paid. And I have to say, I, I didn't play hockey growing up. I don't particularly like hockey. I don't watch hockey. I, I come from Canada, and I don't like hockey, so that's probably why I always felt led to California. But anyway... <laughs> The, the, the point is that it was still really cool to be there. And I knew there were people, because I would talk to them at school, who thought I had the coolest job in the world. Like, you get to hang out with these guys? And I'm like, well, we're not really like, hanging out. I'm kind of just sitting on the bench while they get changed. But, I get, but yeah, I guess we're hanging out, yeah. I could just be there. Now, I was there because I was getting paid, but I bet there were people who would have done it for free just for the experience, just for the exposure, just for the contact. Beloved, this is what Moses was like in his service to the Lord. Yes, he was called. Yes, he was gifted. Yes, he was educated in Egypt at a time where nobody else had his ability to write and to lead the way that he did or his connections. But he also did it because he just plain loved serving the Lord. And the author to the Hebrews says, Moses served like that. And it gave him so much joy. And he was a willing servant in the house of God because one of the things he got to do, notice it, was to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. What were the things that were to be spoken later? We get the answer in John chapter 5. Jesus describes this for us in such clear terms in verse 46 of John 5. He says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses wrote about Jesus. Now, we could suspect that Moses had no idea that anything that he was writing about when he talked about the fact that one day in Genesis, one would come to crush the head of the serpent. You might say he had no idea what he was talking about, and God just dictated that to him. But I don't think that's true. I think Moses had a very clear understanding that much of what he was writing, whether it was a psalm or whether it was part of the books of Moses, was about the coming Messiah, the one who would one day redeem his people from their sin. I think many people knew that. I believe Eve thought that. I think that's why when Eve gives birth to Cain, she says, I have given birth to a man from God. In the original language, it doesn't say a man with the help from God. It just says a man from God. I think she was thinking this must be the one, the one who would come to crush the head of the serpent. The idea that God would one day bring into the world this, this Redeemer, this Messiah, Moses wrote of him. And now the author to the Hebrews says, as great as Moses was, all of his writings only pointed to Christ, but Christ has now come and Christ is superior to him. So take your eyes off of Moses and onto Christ. And when things get hard, don't be tempted to go back to Moses. He's kind of saying Moses is done. The old covenant is done. Christ is going to show himself superior to the prophets and the angels and then to Moses and then to the priesthood and then to the old covenant. 
all the way through chapter 10, verse 19, where it becomes very practical, and it's going to be Christ helping us in our faith, hope, and love towards the end of the book. But as you know, that overarching outline, we're going to have to get deep into the reality that Christ was superior to that old covenant. And, and so the, the writer to the Hebrews here is he's, he's loosening the grip of the people off of their obsession with Moses. And he says, no, the greater one's already come. Verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Oh yes, Moses was very faithful as a servant. He loved to be there. It was his joy. He was willing. He would have done it even if God hadn't called him to it. Just for the glory of being in his presence. But Christ does it as a son. Jesus uses this illustration many times in his teaching. The servant has a certain amount of authority, but the son in the household has all the authority. A servant sometimes even has some control over the direction of the son when he is a minor, but when he comes of age, that son gets all the glory of the father's household. In fact, Proverbs says you ought to be careful how you treat your employees because he says you can start it with a servant and end up with an heir. If you treat them so well, they become entitled to thinking that they're worthy of more than they are. You say, no, you're not an heir, you're a servant. You're not a son, you're a servant. And here the author flips it around. He says, Moses was a servant, but Jesus is the son. He gets all the glory. And he gets all of that glory as a son over a household. And that household is us. We are his house. We come under the lordship of Christ. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. He goes back to this issue of confidence. Our confession, Christ is Lord, our confidence that he is the son over the house of which we are a part, that he is the one that we take all of our, put all of our confidence in, he is the one that we have our hope in, uh, he is the one we persevere under. He is the one who gives us everything. This is the kind of boasting that you can do without any risk of sin. This is a good kind of boasting. In fact, this is the kind of boasting that leads to the rest that we're pursuing. There's a wonderful hymn that summarizes this for us and really answers that question, how can it bring you rest? We've seen the confession, we've seen the confidence, but how can this bring me rest? Let me apply this here. Uh, There's a song, I think I've referenced it several times before, but I'm going to do it again this morning because it's just so good. It's by William Cooper. It's called Love Constraining to Obedience. And in this uh, hymn, William Cooper describes for us the battle that he has and how he overcame it. You see, he was for a time tempted to try to live under the constraints of the law, and he found that it wasn't bringing him any kind of rest, but it was bringing him a wearisome kind of toil. And when he finally discovered his true rest in Christ, he wrote this hymn. No strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord aright. And what she has, she misapplies for want of clearer light. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. Then to abstain from outward sin was more than I can do. Now, 
if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. There's been a change. He says, I used to just feel despair over the sin. But now when I feel this desire to sin, I also feel a hatred for it. The first step is feeling a hatred for that sin. Then he says, all my servile works were done. All my striving, all my laboring, all my works were done. A righteousness to raise, now freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose his ways. It's now his delight to do the will of God. And then he asked a question, what shall I do? Was then the word that I may worthier grow. What shall I render to the Lord is my inquiry now. Does that mean that he thought I should pay God back? If I could just have a list of things to do to pay God back for all the mercy he's shown me, then I'll feel better about myself. I won't feel as indebted to him. I paid down some of the, the mortgage. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, what does a heart that truly understands mercy and grace do? Does it run into sin and say, God's forgive me, I can sin as much as I want? Of course not. That's always the fear from some people. They say, I don't know if you should be preaching all this gospel, all this grace, all this forgiveness stuff, all this merit only in Christ, because you just might find people will believe that and they'll go run out and live like the devil. No, if you really believe it, it doesn't cause you to want to sin. It causes you to want to glorify God. And so he sums it up this way, to see the law of Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. It turns a slave into a child and duty into choice. It's not something that you do because you're supposed to and you have to because you're an employee or a slave, but it's something you do because you want to, because you're a son and you want to honor your father. I think deep down inside, regardless of how well some of us hide it, sons want to honor their fathers. All you fathers are saying, okay, well, I hope you're right. I, but I know I am because you're the same way. You, deep down inside, you want to honor your father. And deep down inside, the believer, when they truly understand the reality of what they have been saved from and saved to, are filled up, not with a sense of being guilty and wanting to pay back, but with a sense of reverent awe and wanting to honor and obey and glorify their Father. Now, what does this kind of rest give you rest from? Let me give you four. Four particular things this gives you rest from. And I get this from a wonderful book that was written by Thomas Boston. And um, it's a book that is taken from the Lord's invitation to come to us and to bear his yoke because his yoke is light, his burden is light. And in this, Thomas Boston says there are four particular ways in which this kind of rest will rescue you. And I've summarized these, and I've given them slightly different names to make it a little bit easier to remember. But number one, it gives you rest from sin. Number two is rest from law. Number three is rest from vanity. And number four is rest from trouble. Rest from sin, rest from law, rest from vanity, and rest from trouble. But what does this um, come from? It comes from the reality that Everybody in their fallen nature 
is usually on one of two main courses. And the way that Boston describes this is either lust or law. They're either trying to find rest by satisfying their lust, or they're trying to find rest by obeying the law. Pretty simple, right? Pretty straightforward. In fact, maybe you move in and out between the two. Sometimes lust, sometimes law. Sometimes rest will come from getting whatever I think I want. Sometimes rest will come from following the rules. And what Thomas Boston says in his analysis of that and of human nature is he says that Christ came to rescue you from both. So the first is that you receive rescue from the law. Oh, I'm sorry, rescue from sin. When you rescued from sin and you rest from sin, he says you rest, first of all, from the guilt of sin because the blood of Christ cleanses you from all sin. And secondly, you rest from the reigning power of sin. When you truly embrace the gospel, you're able to rest from the reigning power of sin. He puts it this way, quote, In the day of the soul's coming to Christ, he, Christ, acts like a king, settling all in order in the kingdom that was a mere heap of confusion before his ascension to the throne. Isn't that an awesome picture? So when you put your faith in Christ, it's like Christ the king comes to rule the chaotic kingdom of your own life. When he is identified as the king, the Lord, he comes in and he puts into place the chaos of your efforts of doing it yourself. He's like a king that rides in, overthrows the despotic ruler, and sets the kingdom in order. You're no longer controlled by sin. Secondly, you receive rest from the law. You receive rest from the burden of the law where all the expectations exist to follow it, but there is no strength to obey. And he rescues you from that because Christ satisfied that law completely, and he frees us from having to do so. And you also receive rest from the law because you receive rest from the curse of the law. According to Galatians 3.13, Christ takes our curse, and he gives us all the rewards that he has earned. So you receive rest from the law. The law is no longer something you have to pursue. You remember that Adam left us with two yokes. There was the yoke of our human nature, and there was the yoke of the law. And the yoke of the law was there even when Adam was there before he fell, but because of his fall, there was now no strength to obey that law, and so we were doubly cursed. We had this fallen nature, and we had a law above us that we couldn't carry. And Christ came to satisfy both. He says, I came to give you a new nature, and I came to take that heavy burden, that heavy yoke of the law, and he put it on himself. And he says, you take this instead, my yoke, which is light, because I'm gentle. It doesn't mean that law wasn't fulfilled. It just means we didn't have to fulfill it. He did it all and then gave the merit to us when we believed by faith. Thirdly, rest from vanity. We rest from all of the endless striving for happiness in a broken world. Isn't it unfortunate that Christians model non-Christians by seeking happiness in a broken world? How much of our testimony is affected by chasing the same things that our unbelieving friends are chasing? 
finding the same satisfaction in the things that our unbelieving friends are finding satisfaction in and becoming discouraged and despondent because we don't get the very things that they get discouraged and despondent about not getting. Can they relate to us in that way? If they can, it's not a good sign. Instead, Boston would tell us that our great hope comes from escaping the vanity of a fallen world and trying to find happiness in it. We rest from wandering and from working and from wondering if we can find something better out there. Rest is found in drinking the water that he gives so that we never thirst again. John 4.14. So rest from sin, rest from the law, rest from vanity, and just one more. Rest from trouble. We rest secure that he reigns no matter who is on the throne. It's encouraging for us, isn't it? To know that no matter what happens out there in the world politically, it's irrelevant because God reigns. He is the one who reigns no matter who is on the throne. He says that to his own disciples who are going to experience terrible trials at the hands of the government very soon. And in the upper room discourse, John 13 through 17, when Jesus prays for his disciples and he explains what is going to come, one of the kindest words he gives to them that should assure them and strengthen them comes in chapter 16 and verse 33, where he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. As bad as the world gets, and the world will get bad. You can quote that good word back to yourself. Simple benediction with infinitely powerful ability to comfort. He has overcome the world. God's children are troubled, but they're not despairing. They are given divine contentment from the Holy Spirit. They are given rest in the grave and then rest forevermore in the glory of the resurrection. That is why Christ is our confession. That is why Christ is our confidence, and that's why in Christ we have the ultimate perfect rest. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for these encouraging words today. We need them. We need to be reminded that you are the one who has come to rescue us from the lust and the law that we so often run to. Uh, that you have come to rescue us from being among the party of those who simply live for themselves or the party of those who live in the hopeless effort of attaining some kind of righteousness through external law. May our confession be clear as we consider you, think deeply about you, look carefully at you, Drink deeply of the truths revealed about you in your word. And may our confidence be strong in the hope of glory that awaits when you return to judge the living and the dead because we will not be counted among those who need to give an account for ourselves in terms of what we have done to earn your favor, but those who will give an account of ourselves by pleading your righteousness and then preparing to receive 
your rewards, earned by you, granted by you, and secured by you. I pray that we would be like the psalmist, and that now as we turn to lift our voice in song, it would be with hearts that have been reminded of the gospel, reminded of the finished work of Christ, and that if there is one here who has not put their faith in you yet, if they have not believed, that today would be the day of salvation, that as they hear what has been said of you today, as they contemplate the reality of your sinless life, that they would answer the question about whether or not they want that kind of rest. And if so, that they too would consider Jesus. And that they would believe what your word has said, that if they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and they believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, that they too would be saved. And for those already saved, may today be a blessed reminder of the hope we have in you. In your name we pray. Amen.